Do you ever struggle with shame? That something from your past, something you did, or something that was done to you, has forever marked your life so badly that you wonder if God can really redeem it. A stain so dark that you wonder if Jesus might even be ashamed of you. My guest today has a life-giving message for all of us. Nobody has a story that can make Jesus blush. Eric Raymond is the senior pastor at Redeemer Fellowship Church in Watertown, Massachusetts, and the author of He Is Not Ashamed, The Staggering Love of Christ for His People, from Crossway. Let's get started. Well, Eric, thank you so much for joining me again on the Crossway Podcast. It's great to be with you. So you open this new book of yours with a quote from John Newton. I wonder if you could start us off by reading that quote and explaining why you started your book with it. Sure. Newton writes, If I ever reach heaven, I expect to find three wonders there. First, to meet some I had not thought to see there. Second, to miss some I had expected to see there. And third, the greatest wonder of all, to find myself there. I want to start the book off by with that quote just because of the the nature of grace and that we really don't deserve in so many ways to go to heaven. Um, it's a gift. Mm-hmm. And the reality that we, I don't know, every single day I think through and I'm grateful for just another day. Mm-hmm. Just keep me another day. Get me to the finish line. And I want to finish. I want to get to, I want to get home. And to to get there and then see, you know, people Jesus has brought that we know and we can rejoice in and see that happen. Mm-hmm. And then maybe even people throughout history surprised about late life conversions or dramatic conversions. Uh, but then at the same time, the sobering reality of people that were, you know, converted under pretense mm-hmm. that uh, wasn't weren't really Jesus's people, mm-hmm. and they're not there. So I think it's very sobering, both in the from the standpoint of God's grace to save us, and then also the reality that. You know, some people that say they're Christians mm. aren't there. So that's why with, with the book, um, you know, both em- the surprise of grace to bring these type of people to himself, people like you and me, and then also the reality that there are people that he rejects, and those are the ones that, that are ultimately ashamed of Jesus mm. and his word. Mm. And that's, a, that's a core idea in this book, this, this idea of, of almost surprise at being loved by Jesus. Uh, and that's something that um, I think so many of us struggle with. We struggle to believe that Jesus really does love us. And uh, one of the one of the the metaphors, maybe the dominant metaphor that you draw on in this book that I thought was so helpful and interesting uh, was this idea of Jesus's family photo of whether or not we would be included in his family photo. Where did you get that idea? And kind of what was what did you like about that metaphor? Yeah. So I mean, just. It was it was interesting as I was you know I've been thinking about this concept for a while the, the he's not ashamed concept but there was a, probably about six years ago I was um, at my father's house mom and dad's house and was going through some pictures that he had and uh, he's are your parents still living yeah yeah so they were just going through some old pictures of uh, you know his grandfather um, and just going going back and I'm looking at these pictures grandfather great grandfather. I'm saying, like, you know, Dad, he, he kind of looks like you. Like, I, I see a resemblance mm. in there. 
And he's like, yeah, yeah, I, I see that too. No, no, it just stuck with me. I like took a couple pictures, and they would show up on my phone periodically, like a, you know, memory or whatever. Yeah. And uh, I was just thinking about this family photo, these people that go before you, and then you resemble them. And then, um, you know, coming to look at the genealogies of Jesus and see the types of people that are, you know, in his family photos, so to speak. Yeah. The people that come behind him, uh, you know, the, the generations before the incarnation, all the way back. Uh, and just striking to, to see the resemblance of these types of people in the story. Hmm. Um, that they have all kinds of baggage and backgrounds. And I, and I start to look at that and, you know, kind of like looking at my great-great-great-grandfather picture and kind of looking at some of these people. And I'm like, I got a little of that in me. I favor that guy. Yeah. I'll read his story. And I see some of me and that guy. I see a little bit there as well. And I and I suddenly look. I'm like, you know, I'm not the only one. Like, th- the whole family history for the church is, mm. is like island of misfit toys, right? Mm. I mean, we're, <laughs> we have, we have so, so much baggage, so much, so many issues. And it just strikes me that this is the, the, the family history, so to speak, that Jesus identifies with uh, people that have a lot of problems. Mm. Well, that's the amazing thing about family is obviously maybe more acute when it, the, the closer you are going back to, you know, looking at your own parents or your grandparents, but Nevertheless, there is this legacy of a family that can sometimes persist and and have huge implications, mm-hmm. huge influences on us as as people. Um, we can even carry a certain family shame and the 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 weight or the burden of mm-hmm. maybe certain things that have happened in our family's history. It just it just it continues on, and so it is interesting to think about that dynamic that we've all experienced in our own lives as we think about our own families. Thinking about that in light of Jesus and how he willingly stepped into this human family, a, a particular family, but then even more broadly, all of us, mm-hmm. our, our legacy, our history, and kind of embrace that burden on himself. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in our own families, like we have stories in our lives even, but in our family story, that if we're honest, we'd want to kind of airbrush out, mm-hmm. Photoshop out. And maybe if we're being perfectly honest, it's probably family members that, you know, if you didn't want to Photoshop them out, you're probably not standing next to them <laughs> in the family <laughs> photo. Put them on the other side. Yeah, maybe yeah. you need to cool off a little and stay on the other side of the, the picture. But that's what's so amazing about Jesus. Is like this, the, the people in this family story, whether it's the genealogy and those who are believers as part of that genealogy or the church itself— you, you have him coming and identifying, and it's not like he's in the background, like the last row. Standing far off. Yeah, separate. He's like he's center stage, mm. you know, wedged shoulder to shoulder with sinners. He's got his like, arms around us. Yeah. yeah. You know, and I, I, in my mind's eye, I picture this smiling arms around his people, and like, this is my family. Mm. And that's uh, just remarkable. So to, to think that, you know, Jesus is not ashamed of his family photo, uh, I mean, that's a game changer. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk about that. Throughout the New Testament, there are the biblical writers take pains in different ways to emphasize Jesus's solidarity with the outcast of society. We see that in so many different ways um, that Jesus is identifying himself with those that, culturally speaking, were were viewed as shameful. They were viewed as the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you've said, in the Gospels in particular, we see... Uh, the genealogies in Matthew's gospel is, is the, the big example of this, where 
we see these interesting figures included there. I wonder if you could just explain briefly what are who are some of those people in the genealogies that stand out to you as uh, maybe intentionally trying to help us think through about Jesus's uh, associations with the outcast. Yeah. So one one big one would be that just the relationship from Genesis um, thirty eight with Judah and Tamar. Mm-hmm. Right, and so you see those names, and if you know you don't double click on that that verse in Matthew, you you, you don't know what's going. You're like, oh, Judah. most of us read through those genealogies, kind of like, oh, why is this here? Let's yeah. get to the story here. Yeah, like Ju- so, Judah and Tamar, they're in the same family, but that's not his wife, mm. right? So, so immediately saying, okay, we need to go read the story and look at it. And you got, you know, you know, Judah is the one f- through whom the Messiah comes, um, as Genesis forty nine tells us. But but prior to that time, you know, he's the son, and he has a wife, and he has one, two sons, and one of the sons marries Tamar and brings her into the family. But this is a wicked guy, and the Lord judges him, and he dies. And then the next brother comes in, and he marries her, but he doesn't, he's selfish, and the Lord t- takes him out too. And then, uh, you know, Judah makes a promise he's going to take care of Tamar, but he doesn't, and she knows it, and he sends her off in the wilderness to go which is basically like someone bearing the curse and get out of here. Yeah. And so she goes. But it was explicitly not what he was called to do, right? Like that that, that rejection of her uh, sending her out into the wilderness away was was him not being taking responsibility for right. her, the right. person under his care. Yeah, not caring for her, sending her back to the pagan land, mm. right, to the Canaanites. And then you have this like little thin promise that when my son gets older, you can marry him, which isn't going to happen. Mm. Uh, so then Judah, then Tamar t- takes it in her own hands and um, dresses like a prostitute while he's up at this sheep-shearing festival. Judah is. His wife's died at this point, and he thinks she's a prostitute, and he propositions her, has sex with her, impregnates her. And now Tamar, the one who wants a family, wants a place, has sons in her womb through her father-in-law. Mm. Um, and then that, that big public... Um, scene where it all comes clear, and Judah finally, you know, repents and says she's more righteous than I. Mm. Uh, but but that's what the line the Messiah comes yeah. through. Right? Jesus like chose that to be yeah. part of his story. He could have picked, you know, Joseph. Uh, like take that line or yeah. something, you know. And it's just not the line. He, that's not that's not the yeah. path. So uh, the focus is on Judah, Tamar, you know, Ruth, and you can look at the story of the Moabites and track that down. The origin of that family, the way the Jews viewed the Moabites at the time. It's like. This is this is the line where David and then where Christ comes through. Mm. So double clicking instead of speeding through the uh, the genealogies, but rather looking at them, it's pausing, mm. reading the stories. You can learn about the heart of Christ for His people and the types yeah. of people He identifies with. Yeah, I think that's that's the question um, that we all just kind of uh, wonder at that point is when we learn about those stories, why why would Jesus choose that? What is what's behind that decision? Yeah. I, I mean, ultimately, I don't know, like why particular ones and not not other ones, but I know it does make a point that these are the types of people Jesus comes for, right? He didn't come, to, as he says, he didn't come to call the righteous but the unrighteous. He's the physician that doesn't see the the healthy but the sick, right? And he seems most at home with people who seem to be the furthest away from God. Mm. And uh, so you just, you know, whether you're looking at the genealogy or you just you know, track the narratives in the New Testament in particular of the types of people that Jesus is drawn to and the type of mercy that he shows them. It's it's really astounding. Yeah. You write in the book, nobody has a story that can make Jesus blush. 
And uh, I think that's easy for us to say, but it can be a lot harder for us to actually believe that day in and day out when we look at our own lives, look at our own family's story. Uh, we can we can really have a hard time embracing that for real. Have you wrestled with believing that truth in your own life? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and by that, I don't mean that Jesus is you know, desensitized to sin. I mean, he's holy, and his perception of evil and sin is far more acute than any blushing sinner would ever understand or, or realize. So it's not that he doesn't see it. Right. So he's, I mean, he's literally seen everything. Mm. He knows everything and seen everything. So he knows the darkest day, and he knows how dark our best days are. So nothing we could do can surprise him, and nothing could make him blush in the sense that he could say, oh, well, you know, there was that, that one day or that month or that six-year period. No, he knows. And so just to, I mean, we we all wrestle through uh, our own sins and shortcomings. And, you know, we, we feel the repercussions of relationships where we sin against people and we have um, arguments or issues and we hurt them. We say things that are unkind and we feel that. And then we think of the, the impact of our sins not only on the individual, but our relationship with, with God. And, and that's why it's so encouraging to think that, that Jesus has is, is counted all of that in. Mm. He, like he knew who he was purchasing. He, he didn't save the receipt when he died upon the cross for our sins. As he's going to return us to the store sometime. That's not how it works. Mm. He knows exactly who he came for to seek and save those who are sinners. Mm. Yeah, it seems to me part of the story as to why we can sometimes have a hard time really believing that God, that Jesus, that God isn't ashamed of us is because of our own complicated struggle with shame. Mm-hmm. We're ashamed of ourselves, and so it's hard to believe that Jesus wouldn't be ashamed of us as well. Do you think that that is part of our struggle to believe Jesus? Yeah, I think I think you're right on to, on to the, the issue there, because like, so from our conscience standpoint, we sin and we feel guilt and shame, like Adam and Eve in the garden, so we know we did something we shouldn't do. And then we're informed not only by conscience and general revelation, we're co- informed by the scripture of who God is and how holy he is and how he's too pure to look upon evil. We know that that's who God is. And so we're informed by that. So we're, our, our reflex is to, to get the fig leaves and hide mm. and separate. But the problem is um, that we just stay in the guilt and the shame and we project that back onto God and we forget the way that he specifically Christ our sympathetic high priest looks at us and we're not looking through his eyes and seeing that while we are sinners Christ died for sinners so he's proven himself I mean you could you could think about the covenant before the foundation of the world the father son the spirit that the Trinity would save sinners so he knows what he's doing and then the incarnation to become a to become a man I love the quote by Thomas Watson where he says it's more humbling um, for um, Christ to become a man than to die upon the cross because it's natural for mm. a man to die. It's not natural for, for God to become a man. Yeah. So like he's proven that he's okay with with us in welcoming us to himself because he put on flesh. That's one of those things we can be so focused on the cross and, and rightly so, yeah. this atoning death and then the resurrection. But sometimes we, I feel like we pay short shrift to the incarnation and what that in and of itself tells us about God's heart. Yeah, absolutely. Like Hebrews 2, where, where I get the, the source for um, the book, he's not ashamed. Um, he's not ashamed to call us brothers. I mean, because he, 
we have one source. It's the solidarity that Jesus has with us that he becomes a man to, to come and to save us. So it's not only the, the death upon the cross, which is shameful in the sense that there's no more shameful way to somebody to die, but it's also the fact that he put on skin, he became a man to identify with us that he might die for us. Mm. It seems like uh, while many of us know what it feels like to be ashamed of ourselves, some of us also know what it feels like to be ashamed of others. Mm-hmm. We can feel uh, either shame on behalf of someone else or we actually feel ashamed of them. Do you think that affects how we view God as well at times? Yeah, I think how we view God and how we view the church at the same time and mm-hmm. then maybe society as well uh, outwardly. Um, so we, uh, we tend to tend to cast ourselves in a maybe a good light and then can look at others. I mean, the stories like at the end of Luke 7 where... You know, Jesus is talking with the, the Pharisees and um, sitting down, having this meal, and that sinful woman kind of wanders in off the street, and she's crying and wiping Jesus' feet, anointing him. And he's like, what, the, the religious leader's like, what are you doing? Mm. Like, why would you, this, this woman, and she's actually the model of how you understand Jesus because of the great forgiveness that yeah. we have. You and come so, to him in your shame. Yeah. Yeah. And so it, do, it does seem like th- throughout the Gospels, there's this constant um, impulse to push people away that might not be honorable people. Mm. And Jesus is, seems like he's like swimming through the resistance <laughs> to go and get them. Mm. He's like, actually, these are the ones that I want. I want the children. I want the lame. I want the blind. I want the lepers. I want the humbled people. Mm. I, I, I want them for myself. Yeah. So what does that say about the the opposite of that, the, the proud, those who don't maybe sense quite that need. I, that's probably another experience that some of us would have of, of yeah, we, we pay lip service. We know that we need Jesus. We need cleansing. We know that we are sinful. But maybe we don't always feel that um, awe at what God has done for us. We don't feel that lowliness. Um, is that a problem? Yeah, I think so. I mean, like, so you have the two, the two sides, right, where... Um, you know, the gospel's good news because it means that nobody is too sinful that Jesus can't save them. But it's also good news in the sense that nobody is good enough that they don't need saving. Mm. So I don't know where, where we might fall on the spectrum where we think we're so good that we actually become bad. Mm. I mean, what, what could be more offensive than to say, I'm actually, I'm so good that Jesus Christ is beneath me. I don't need him. And none of us would say that. But but that's kind of what we're saying. Yeah, but yeah. we kind of I think I think the way that we think about him mm-hmm. can sometimes betray that. Yeah. Yeah. You spend a lot of time in the book reflecting on our experience of weakness as as humans and also as Christians and it's in all kinds of areas that we experience weakness. Uh, and one of the biggest facets of weakness that we experience is physical weakness, physical limitations and uh, ultimately, you know, our own mortality that our bodies will break down to such an extent that we will die uh, unless Jesus comes back before then. And obviously we're all coming out of this COVID pandemic where I think our culture in a, maybe an unprecedented way, at least in our lifetimes, has been so focused on mortality. We've literally seen uh, numbers uh, recording the number of people who have died every day for months and even years at this point. And so I, I do think it feels like our culture is more aware of the reality of death than maybe we have, and we, we want to push it away so often. Um, 
you mentioned that uh, during the pandemic, uh, a friend of yours, a good friend of yours died and that you kind of thought about that, that affected how you thought about death and this issue of our weakness, our physical weakness. I wonder if you could share a little bit about the story of what happened there and, and how God uh, taught you things through that. Yeah. So he, that individual that you're referring to, um, he, he died. So the pandemic kind of started. So like March time period, 2020, he died in, um, in May, 2020. And um, he didn't die of COVID, but he had been suffering with cancer, mm. you know, prior. And um, it got really, really bad there, obviously, at the end. And just pastorally, like, you want to be with your people. and You want to spend time with them. You want to pray with them. And you can't, at that time, nobody really knows what's going on in mm. the sense of the pandemic and what you can and can't do. And so everyone's isolated. But you can't, we couldn't get to them in the sense of go visiting and mm. seeing, and you just feel really... All the things that you would normally have yeah, done in that situation. The personal interaction, the closeness. I mean, so you're doing like Zoom calls and people are calling, but it's just not the same. And so and then he um, ends up having to go, you know, to the hospital and he's going in for treatment regularly. And then, I mean, it's getting bad and he's in the hospital, but nobody's allowed in the room with him, mm. you know, so... To even to think you you know your wife kids family are not allowed in the room at the time is um, just the whole thing just makes you sad right mm. you're just thinking about it um, but so I'm I'm reflecting on that after his death and just thinking like this is this is just unusual we take for granted um, all of the access we have to people in their mm. death and it just it occurred to me um, in thinking about like. The psalmist says that uh, precious in his sight uh, is the death of the death of his his people, and and thinking about the reality of not only theologically God's omnipresence and omniscience and He sees and knows everything at all times, but in a particular special sympathizing close way that Christ is with His people, mm. so nobody else can be in there. But it, I just had this. In my mind's eye, Jesus rushing to the bedside mm. to comfort through the Spirit, to to console, and to to escort this dear brother to glory, mm. and like so, like weakness in that moment, and in general, but weakness in Christ's people does not repel him mm. because he's strong. In fact, it draws him because he's strong. Mm. He comes alongside of the weak. And close, caring, sympathizing, compassionate, tender, loving Savior. Mm. And escorting him to glory. Mm. Uh, and I just, I was greatly consoled by the reality that, you know, what me as a shepherd in the church, because of providence at this time, can't do, the good shepherd does. Mm. Mm. And he takes care of them. And, and that's the case in reality, even if there wasn't a pandemic. He's, he's there with his people. So... Whether you're on the deathbed in a literal sense or you're feeling the effects of physical weakness or even spiritual weakness to know that that doesn't repel Christ, but it draws him to us. Mm. Um, you know, Paul would even boast in his weakness because he knows it shows the, the power and strength of Jesus. Yeah, you write that, quote, weakness has a purpose. Mm -hmm. And that's one of those things that I think those who experience weakness in profound ways, prolonged ways, uh, that that could be really uh, good news, but maybe hard news to embrace and accept. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so backing up one step, like 
we you might just contrast weakness with strength and we say well this person over here is weak for you know because they struggle with these physical infirmities whatever they they might be but to say on the other hand this person's strong what's well, a relative strength right because we're humans yeah. we're this is finite we're dying yeah. i mean we, we're, we're all, all terminal dying. right so to say i'm strong and this person's weak because this one has chronic pain and i don't have chronic pain or this one has a, a, a terminal illness and i don't that's just not that's not being um being honest of what's really going on thinking mm. biblically we're all weak we're all in that category does, does that weak? apply to things beyond physical weakness like what, spiritual weakness and our our constant struggle with with our own sin nature yeah i think i mean everything from the standpoint of like some people might struggle with might be a little more melancholy or dealing with depression some people's consciences might might accuse them in a certain way or might have more restrictions on them in that way um could be just even a particular season dealing with temptation and sin right so Broadly speaking, we're all weak. Mm. It's just different times, different ways, different people. We we have different expressions of these weakness, and so. And when I say it has a purpose, one thing it does is it points to us and it reminds us of that this life is not the end. Mm. Um, that that it's it has an expiration date on it, and we're moving quickly to the time period that that ultimately matters. It doesn't mean it doesn't matter now, but it it's moving us kind of like and we're we're waiting in a airport terminal waiting to board the flight that's mm. that's our momentary life and so the purpose is to remind us that this isn't heaven that this is this is the place of thorns and thistles mm. and we're going we're going to Emmanuel's land where these things are gone and in the meantime Emmanuel comes to us mm. and welcomes us in our weakness and makes us strong in him so that we don't boast in ourselves but we boast in Christ that's one of those tensions that I, I sometimes feel like I wrestle with a little bit uh, that idea of, yes, we long for this future life with God and the new heavens and the new earth. We look forward to that, and that helps us to endure in the here and now. And yet, it seems like one of the things you want to emphasize is that in the here and now, we shouldn't miss the fact that Jesus is with us and that mm-hmm. he is close to us, that he He wants to comfort us now. It's not just all about looking ahead. Yeah, right. I mean, so let's take somebody that's struggling with, let's just say, chronic pain, uh, fatigue in various ways as a result of that. And I've talked to a number of people that feel like that Jesus might be ashamed of them because they're not as useful as this person over here or as useful as they were 10 years ago or 15 years ago or somebody who's older. And they, they look back and they're saying, you know, I'm not useful anymore like I, I was before. And th- so they have this physical weakness, whatever whatever goes in that bucket, and they struggle with with some degree of shame and guilt and discouragement because they almost in the same way that we might over uh, physical uh, over spiritual weakness mm-hmm. with regard to temptation and sin and we can begin to grow distant from God and begin to feel like maybe he's not he doesn't love me mm-hmm. uh, maybe he's ashamed of me I mean look at these people over here serving and having people in their house and I can't even lift my arms I'm so weak and hurting um, and you look and it's like he, he he knows I mean remember he he's our creator mm. he remembers that we were dust he knows who we are he knows us intimately and he knows everything about us and so he's able to sympathize with us in our weakness he became a man like us mm. maybe not experiencing obviously not experiencing all of the different aspects of physical weakness or spiritual weakness that we endure but as coming in humanity, he's able to sympathize with us because he became a man, so he's able to help us in that. And that's one of those things that I think we don't always think about um, 
at least I don't, that he not only experienced kind of humanity generally, but he experienced the reality of death itself. Mm -hmm. Uh, How does that impact how you think about him? Well, I mean, brimming to the top of love because it wasn't obligatory on him Mm -hmm. in his essence to die. I mean, so that is Jesus becoming a man. Why did he do that? He did it because of love, because of us. Um, God didn't lack anything. Um, By dying, he doesn't become a better God Mm. um, as Christ dies. Um, So the whole death of Christ is just enveloped in weakness, but yet it's an exclamation point of divine strength Mm. and love. So looking at the cross, you're reminded of the reality of your mortality and what sin cost, but you're also reminded of eternity and the love of God in Jesus Mm. Christ for sinners like us. So the broader world often portrays biblical Christianity, biblical Christians as constantly focused on sin, constantly focused on shame and our unworthiness. Uh, and, and sometimes Christians contribute to that. We, we, we make that our primary message. We, we pick at people and yell at them and tell them they're going to, to hell. Um, and yet other times, uh, it, it seems like that's just uh, the perception, the genuine perception that uh, that the the secular world has of what Christians are focused on. So what does it look like for Christians to, on the one hand, uphold the seriousness of sin and the brokenness of our world, but also at the same time embrace and herald this truth that God is not ashamed of his people? That's a really good question, right? So I guess maybe I'd, I'd back out of that question a little bit, not avoiding it, but like, like a parking spot, back out of it a little <laughs> bit. Um, Get lined up. Yeah, and, and just go back and say, does Jesus love his people? Or, or maybe another way, does God the Father love you as a Christian because Jesus died for you? In other words, the death of Christ, did that pull the lever that initiated divine love? Mm. And I think some Christians think like that. They think like God hates everybody, but those who believe in Jesus, now he loves you mm. because you, you've made this deal. Uh, deal with God based on conversion and now he loves you. But I, I don't think that's true. And I think like time-wise, like the Apostle Paul is telling us that, that before the foundation of the world, he set his love on us, mm. right? So it wasn't, the, the cross isn't the triggering event that initiates divine love the cross is the event that demonstrates Mm. god's eternal love for his people so i think i would back up and and think about god has this massive plan uh, before time even existed not only to save people from sin but to shower his love upon them and bring them in to be part of his family and to restore the world that's broken by sin. So I think we as Christians, we have, the, we have a big message to tell people, but it's not this reductionistic, you know, sales gospel presentation, which is just this conversion and go. We've we got to see who God is before Calvary mm. and what his promises say uh, to, to people like you and me and what he's doing through the gospel all the way to the end when he's going to restore all things. So I think we have a big picture that kind of gets narrowed down to very important things to the gospel, but the gospel doesn't start in 
the reality of Calvary. It's in the mind of God before mm. the foundation of the world. I want to go back and, and dwell on that a little bit more, maybe as a last question. At a couple of points in the book, you reference the, quote, eternal oath mm-hmm. between the persons of the Trinity that helps you to remember God's love for you uh, in the midst of feeling the weight of your sin and shame. So what are you referring to by that eternal oath, and why does it give you hope? Yeah, great question. The covenant of redemption, theologians call it, where you you have this divine oath between the members of the Trinity. And in short, what you have, if you break that up by persons in the Trinity, that the Father has a people, an elect people, his chosen people, the church, the bride of Christ. And even before we're created, God sets his love on his church, his people. And in order to deal with the problem of sin, the son must accept the responsibility to come and become a man and to to live a perfect life of obedience in our place and to die a death of sufficient atonement, substitutionary atonement. And then the father promises, based upon the son's obedience to the father, this covenant, that, that he will raise him from the dead. And then he will give him a people and that the Spirit will be sent to apply the work of Christ to to these people that, the, that are in the Father's heart before eternity, way, way before creation. And so you have this, this covenant of redemption, this oath between the members of the Trinity to carry out the eternal plan of God to save helpless, wrecked, ruined sinners and make them his own. Mm. And to see all the members of the Trinity working in perfect unity for our good and God's glory and our eternal happiness is just, I mean, we forget that, right? Mm-hmm. So if, you know, I think um, just the reminder that he loved us before time, he loved us at the cross, and he's going to love us all the way into eternity. Mm-hmm. So when you have that framework that you're looking at, his love doesn't begin just at Calvary. It began before the foundation. Or even at our, our own birth. Yeah, or at our birth, or at our conversion, or, you know, it's all the way to the end. Mm. It's this big, infinite s- spectrum of divine love. And so then we don't think of God as pr- as the Father primarily as judge, and Jesus as Savior, and the Spirit as this kind of impersonal force. We think of the Trinity as this loving, initiating, blessing, sacrificing, serving, sealing, sustaining God who has this whole plan Mm. where he saves people for himself. And suddenly, all we can do is worship and and give him praise and glory for for all he deserves. What a beautiful vision that that we confess as true and uh, hope-giving. Thank you so much, Eric, for taking the time to talk with us today. You bet. uh, We appreciate it. It's my pleasure. That was Eric Raymond on why nothing in our lives is a surprise to our Savior. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, He Is Not Ashamed, The Staggering Love of Christ for His People. Pick up your copy of the book for 30% off directly from Crossway by visiting crossway.org plus. That's crossway.org plus. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. That really helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. 
visit us today at crossway.org.